Two of the three main characters of the story. We've been introduced to Naomi. We've been introduced to Ruth. And this week, we are going to meet the third main character of the story, a man named Boaz. Now, there's a lot of different ways that you can introduce a character. The two most common ways as you're, as you're reading a story or as you're watching a story unfold on the screen, maybe in a movie, the, the two most common ways to introduce a character, number one, you could give backstory. You could let us know where this character is from, what things they've gone through that have made them the way that they are. If you like superhero movies, you think of an, an origin story that lets you know how this ordinary person became the hero that you're going to watch for the rest of the film. What is it that, that changed them, that altered them, that, that spurred them on to become what they are today? That's kind of the way that we saw Ruth and Naomi introduced. We got backstory. We find out uh, what it is that drives Naomi away from home into a foreign land. We find out that she loses her husband. She loses her sons. She meets Ruth as a daughter-in-law who clings to her. And this foreign pagan woman, Ruth, comes back to, the, to Israel, to God's people with Naomi. We see what it is that shaped them as we go into the rest of the story. But this morning as we meet Boaz, we will not get any backstory. We don't find out where Boaz comes from, how he became the person that he is today. We're simply presented with this guy. And we're going to have to watch through the things that we see him doing, through the way that the narrator portrays him. We learn a little bit about who he is, about the type of man he is, about the part that he's going to play in this story. And so I want you to think this morning as we look through this text, pay close attention to who Boaz is and see what we can learn about him as we go through this type of, type of character introduction um, was fresher on my mind Friday night. We had our monthly film and theology club, and we watched the movie A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson. And in the beginning of the movie, you're first introduced to Tom Cruise's character. He's this, this cocky young uh, lawyer with the, the Judge Advocate General's Corps. And you meet him. He's on a baseball field. He's getting ready for a softball game. While Demi Moore's character, who's going to be working with him on this big case, comes up to meet him to ask him some questions, and he's really just kind of brushing her off. He's more focused on the softball game. He's very much sure that he's going to be able to take care of this. He thinks he's read the case, and he knows how he's going to settle it in about five seconds. And so just by watching his character in that scene, you learn what you need to know about him. You learn that he's, he's very prideful. He's very cocky. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of concern for other people or for the, the details of the cases that he works. He's just looking for a win, for a W. That, that gets his notch up just a little bit higher so he can get on with, with the career that he really wants to have in law. In five minutes, without telling you anything about where he's from, who his dad was, what brought him excuse me, to this point, we know his character. This is going to be doing that same thing for Boaz this morning. We're going to get a five-minute a five picture, if you will, of who he is, of this little episode as he meets Ruth for the first time. And as you pay attention to the details, you're going to get to learn this picture of a godly man. Boaz is a, is a man who is worthy of study. He's worthy of emulation. We're going to look at him as kind of a template, as a paradigm for us who are aspiring to be godly men, to follow. Uh, and so think about that this morning. Think about the character traits that you see in Boaz and what those look like applied to a life today. If you're a guy, how can you be this kind of godly man? If you're a woman, how can you encourage the men around you to be this kind of godly man? And what traits from, from Boaz are applicable to anyone of any gender, not just uh, what a godly man looks like? So we're going to look at this as a character study. We're going to look at this as an introduction to a godly man. But then also we're going to look at this beyond that as a picture of a redeemer that is to come. We're not going to hear a whole lot today of what part Boaz is going to play in the story, but we're going to drop some breadcrumbs. We're going to drop some hints. And we're going to think about the fact that Boaz isn't just about a guy we should be like. He's a picture of the Christ who is coming, of the one who ultimately we need to be like, we need to follow. So this morning, as we read verses 1 through 16 together, I invite you, pay attention to the details and meet our friend Boaz. Ruth 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, came, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. 
She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray, and then let's look further into this man that we're presented with. Our great God, the God of history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Boaz, we ask this morning that what we know not you teach us, What we have not, you give us. What we are not, you make us, as only your spirit can. Remind us of that truth this morning and be glorified in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are going to look through several different aspects of Boaz's character that we see this morning. We have, I believe it's six points, which might be Baptist heresy, but here we are. We're going to just roll through and look at this, this character study, this picture. And so we're going, to, we're going to rattle through these traits. We're going to look at how we see these come out of the story this morning. And then at the end, we'll kind of take stock and we'll say, all right, here's this picture. Here's what we've learned about this man. Now, what do we do with this? How does this apply to us? But we're going to begin with verse 1 and start moving through and looking at what is it we learn about Boaz. And the first thing that we learn about Boaz, subtly here, but importantly, maybe the most important thing that we learn about Boaz, is that he is a tool in God's hand. And if Boaz is a paradigm, is a template for a godly man, we learn that a godly man should be a tool in God's hand. So we get a summary of Boaz's life right here in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So we get a little tip as to the relevance of the, that he's going to have to the story. Important to point out here that he is a man of the clan of Elimelech. It comes up there in verse 1. It comes up again in verse 3. Now to those of us who were not Israelites, who don't know this culture, this world, that might be like, oh, so he's a relative. Nice fact. It's much, much deeper than that. I'm not going to steal too much of Tom's thunder for next week, but he's going to pull out why that's deeply significant to our story, and we're going to learn more about that. But we're going to look more this morning at the first fact that we see about him is that this man, Boaz, is a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. He's a worthy man. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a loaded term. The word in Hebrew that we translate here as worthy is the word hail, and it encompasses a whole lot of things. It appears all throughout the Old Testament and can be translated in many different ways. It can indicate material wealth. It can ind- indicate standing in the community, prominence in one's local community. It can indicate physical strength, the strength of a warrior. It can indicate valor and bravery. It can indicate uh, all of these things, and very often, no matter which which one of those things it's pointing to, it often carries with it a component of of moral nobility. This is one who is of noble character. The the way that we need to read this and and hear it is is most directly, Boaz is a stand-up guy. Like, this is a good man in the community. If you are looking at an older translation, something like the, uh, the King James or many of other older English translations, they kind of play up the wealth aspect of this, that Boaz was a wealthy man. He was a man of means and standing in the community. Most more recent translations uh, bring up more of the moral capacity. So here we have that he was a, a worthy man. 
which makes us think more of the character of Boaz than it does of of what he possessed. But all those are rolled into one here. This is a guy who was of standing in the community, and that standing was not wasted on his character. Boaz is a worthy man, and he's a relative of Elimelech. And so in broad brushstrokes, what we need to know about Boaz from this first verse is he is a man of noble character, he's a man of material means, and he's going to play a big role in our story. This is going to be a central character in the tale of Ruth and Naomi. But how do Ruth and Naomi get introduced to Boaz? He's, he may be a relative, but we don't have any indication of any real relationship between him and certainly not Ruth at this point, or, or any indication that he and Naomi are particularly close. And so what we see is that Ruth is going to, to meet Boaz. Not only is Boaz going to pay, play a significant role in the story, but Boaz is going to just happen to play a, a significant role in the story. And that's why we talk about Boaz being a tool in God's hand. It's going to be made very evident in these first few verses that it is God who is weaving Boaz into the story of Naomi and Ruth. So what's Ruth doing here? She's headed out in verse 2 to go and glean among the ears of grain in the fields of Bethlehem. Uh, So we need to do a little bit of unpacking here to help us understand what is this gleaning that's being talked about? What is it that Ruth is doing? Well, it's about the only thing that someone in her social economic situation could possibly do. Remember, she has come back with Naomi. They have nothing. They have no husbands to care for and provide for them. They are two widows, which in that culture and that society was about as vulnerable a position that you could possibly find yourself in. And so they don't have means to provide them for themselves. But what they did have was provision in God's law, in the law of Moses, that was specifically made for people like them, for people who were vulnerable, for people who were poor, who were outcasts. The law of Moses made allowances that if you had fields and you had crops, that you were not to harvest every last bit of what you had, that you were to leave some of it for the, the sojourner, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, to be able to come in and sustain themselves. I want you to hear a couple of verses. First one is from Leviticus. Listen to this command from Leviticus 23.22. The Lord says, And when you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So when you reap, when you reap a harvest, don't reap your field all the way up to the edge. Leave a buffer around the edge that goes unharvested. And then do not do not gather the gleanings after you harvest. So when they're harvesting the grain, when they're harvesting their crop, you know, there's going to be stuff that falls to the ground that is missed. The Lord says, don't go back after that and and pick up the leftovers. Leave them for those who come behind you to be able to find and sustain themselves. That's Leviticus 23. Listen to this further word in Deuteronomy 24. The Lord says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. This is more kind of background information, but it's really worth it for us to pause for just a minute and think about the nature of what God's commanding here. This was an agrarian society. This was a society that was steeped in agriculture. And so when he talks about reaping and gathering, like to us, we think, okay, that's for farmers, which are a very small segment of our modern world, of our modern economy. Not so here. This is a term that is basically given most everyone was a farmer. Most everyone was involved in agriculture. And so this is a command for the economy of Israel to be one that provides for the outcast, for the orphan, for the widow. And so as we think about our modern world, just think about, meditate on this week, take some time to think about how can we put this command into practice in the world in which we live? What God in essence is commanding is economic inefficiency. He's saying, when you, when you reap, don't reap everything. And when you forget something, don't go back for it. And when you are, are doing the pass of your fields, go over it once, don't go over it a second time. Be intentionally inefficient and leave something behind to provide for those who are less fortunate. 
What he's commanding here is that those with means should not be thinking purely about themselves, but should be using what God has given them in order to bless others. And we're going to see in a bit just how radically and seriously Boaz takes this command. But let it be one for us to think on. Just as we look at this culture and the way that God instructed them to operate, God's commands are eternal. We may not live in the same situation as the children of Israel. You might not have a field that you're going to go reap this afternoon. But you have material, you have wealth that God has blessed you with. How can you use that in this same way to bless those who are less fortunate? So that's the context in which Ruth heads out into the fields to glean. She tells Naomi, I'm going to go out and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So I'm going to go out in the fields, I'm going to glean grain, and hopefully someone will take pity and have mercy on me and allow me to to glean in their field. And so Naomi says, go, my daughter. And she went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And here's the, the part of the verse that I like. And she happened to come to the field, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So again, a reminder, remember, he's of the clan of Elimelech. This is important later on. But I love the language of, and she happened to come to the part of the field. Uh, pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson said we could literally translate this as the happenstance that happened to her was. Like the, the author is laying this on as, isn't it a nice coincidence that she happened to come to the part of the field that Boaz owned? And then going into verse four, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Now that behold sounds like archaic language that we don't really use today, but like you think that's the kind of thing that Jesus might say, behold, my people. Like, but what this is, is it's an it's a emphasis of surprise. Like there is Ruth and she just happens to come into Boaz's field and wouldn't you know it, right? As she comes into Boaz's field, Boaz shows up. We're meant to see coincidence. We're meant to see happenstance and we're meant to know that there's something greater going on here that the Lord is using circumstance to bring these two people together. You see, Boaz's ultimate importance in the story comes not from his character, and we're going to see a lot from his character. That's not what makes him the most important thing in the story. The most important thing is that he is a tool in the hand of God who is weaving this story together. His character and his goodness wouldn't mean a thing if God wasn't going to put him in the position to get to meet Ruth and to get to play a part in her life, in the life of Naomi. God is orchestrating this. This is not happenstance. This is not something that is just pure coincidence, but we are meant to see it as something that the Lord is doing. See his hand at work. And so a godly man, if we want to be like Boaz, we need to be willing to be a tool in God's hand. And so that changes the way that we think about ourselves, right? Do you you have an overinflated sense of your own significance? One thing that can happen as we grow in godliness, as we grow in holiness, is we can can fall prey to the trap of pride and think, I'm getting pretty good at this stuff, you know? God is so happy to have somebody like me around. Isn't it great that I can play a part in things? No, 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 that's not the way a godly man operates. A godly man sees his significance not in what he can do for God, but what God can do with him. God is the storyteller. God is the narrator. God is the director of the play who is weaving people in and off the stage. We're just playing a part. Are you willing to play the part that God assigns to you? Are you willing to recite the lines that he is feeding to you? Are you willing to be a tool in God's hand? Boaz was. And everything else that happens in the story happens because he was, because he's willing to play the part that God has given him. Well, let's continue on in verse four and let's see the next thing about about Boaz that we learn, which kind of goes hand in hand in that. Boaz's focus is on the Lord. Boaz's focus is on God. And so a godly man's focus should be on the Lord. Verse four, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So we've had a summary statement about who Boaz is, where he comes from, that he's a worthy man. But what does that look like practically? To be a worthy man, to be a man that is hail, as, as the text says, what does that actually look like in everyday life? Well, we're going to get our first picture right here. I want you to notice the way that he greets his workers. The Lord be with you. And they reply right back, the Lord bless you. So we have these greetings that are offered, one from Boaz. It's echoed from his workers. 
but its focus is on God. Now, we might be tempted to say, okay, I mean, we're digging a little bit, grasping at straws here, right? Like, this is just a greeting. This is just, you know, what people say when they see each other. No different than when, you know, if one of you sneeze and I say, God bless you, that doesn't really mean I'm thinking or talking about God. It's just what people say. How do we know that there's significance in these words? Well, I want you to notice the details. Notice how Boaz talks here. He says, the Lord be with you. He doesn't just use the generic term for God. He is invoking the covenant name of God. Whenever you see Lord in small caps in your Bible like, like it is right here, this is what, what actually is appearing there is being translated as Yahweh, is the covenant name of God that he revealed to his people, the, the way that he revealed his name, his character, his identity. And so Boaz is not just saying, hey, God bless you. He's saying, Yahweh be with you. May God, may the covenant-keeping God place his blessings upon you. He invokes the blessings of Yahweh. This is a personal greeting. It's not cold, it's not distant, and it's echoed by his workers in a way that suggests an affection and respect for him. When they reply back, the Lord bless you, Yahweh bless you. We have a picture in just a few words here that this is a guy who has the respect and admiration of the people who work for him. There's a warmness to this greeting and the way that it's echoed by his men. And what we're going to see too is that these words are not empty. Right? It's one thing to say, the Lord bless you. It's one thing to use religious language, godly terminology. But we're about to see that Boaz lives like a man who is under the covenant of God. Boaz lives like one who knows God in covenant relationship, who lives and who acts according to what God has said and taught him. His religious words are not mere lip service, but they reflect a heart for God, a focus on the Lord, on who he is, on what he desires. And so a godly man focuses on Yahweh. A godly man focuses on the Lord in his words and in the actions that flow from his heart. His first words in our story show a man focused on the Lord. His actions will back that up. Is that true of you? How long does someone have to get to know you before they realize the significance of the Lord in your life? We need one scene. In fact, we need the very first entry in this one scene to know that about Boaz. How many conversations does someone have to have with you before they see this just flow out? In your words? In your actions? If we had just a five-minute scene to get to know you as a character, would we see the hand of God and a love for God coming from you like we see it coming from Boaz right here? And, and Boaz isn't in a religious context. He's not at church when he's saying this. He's at work, right? He's out with his hired hands in the fields harvesting grain. A godly man should be like Boaz and have a focus on the Lord. What does that focus do then for his relationship with other people? We're going to see it begin to play out here in verses 5 through 7. Boaz has a concern for insignificant people. All right, the next thing we get from Boaz here is a question. Who is that woman that's gleaning? Boaz says to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, verse 5, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the, shell, the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Boaz shows a genuine interest in quite possibly the most insignificant person in his field that day. Right? The people who glean were not the, the upper crust of society, by definition. Who gleaned? The poor, the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, the fatherless. The insignificant were the ones who were along the fringes, gathering whatever was left over. And not only that, but Ruth is also a woman who is doing this work. Women were not of any significance in that culture at the time. It was a man's world, very, very clearly. And not only is she poor, not only is she insignificant, not only is she a woman, she's a foreigner. And not only a foreigner, but a foreigner from an enemy country, a country that does not have a friendly relationship with the people of Israel. You could not imagine a more insignificant person to plop on the fringes of Boaz's field, and yet he takes immediate notice. And he asks a question, who, who is that? He takes the time to inquire about her. 
Now, we can kind of go off the rails here speculating on what's the tone or the nature of this inquiry. If you read, you know, commentaries, commentators will kind of take this and run with it. You know, is this, is this a love-struck romanticism like we see some commentators suggest? Like, is, is, does Boaz see Ruth on the other side of the field? Like, who is that lady? Like, is, is that, we know a romance, if we've read the whole book, is going to start to bloom and blossom here. Is that what's going on? Is this the simple curiosity of Boaz sees an unfamiliar face in a town that doesn't really have many unfamiliar faces? Remember, Bethlehem's not a big place. Everybody knows everybody. So does he just say, who's who's that? I've never seen her before. Or is it something else entirely? I don't know. The text doesn't say to us. We're not given much in terms of tone and motivation. All we're told is that he asked about her. So that's where we're going to draw the most significance. Boaz took the time to ask about Ruth. And look how much he learns because of that question, right? In just that one question, the answer that he gets, he learns where she's from, how she came to live there, her general story, we're going to see in verse 11 that he knows the details of her story, her humble spirit, remember the way that she asked in order to glean in his field, and then her diligence. She's been working all day until now except for a short rest, Because of that one question, Boaz has a pretty good handle on on who Ruth is, on why she's there, on what type of person she is. He knows, because he knows those things about her, he's set up to play a part in her story. Imagine if he didn't ask. Imagine if he just let Ruth go along, even if he was gracious to her, let her continue to glean in the field, but never inquired about her. The story ends right here. Nothing of significance happens. It happens because he asks. It happens because he's concerned for the insignificant person in his midst. He didn't just go about his very busy day. I mean, Boaz is a man of means. He's stopping by the field to see how things are going. I'm sure he's got other stuff he needs to check on, but he takes the time. How many people do you pass by every day that you don't even notice? How many people are in your regular orbit, whether at work, whether at school, whether in your neighborhood, that you know next to nothing about and you really don't care to? Who is it that God has placed on the fringes of your field, and the fringes of your life, that maybe you need to inquire about? Maybe you need to learn something about? Maybe you need to learn about their story. You will never play a role in somebody's story if you're not willing at least to read it first, to know who they are, to know how God is working in their life. A godly man is concerned with and concerned for others, and he's not just concerned with those the world views as significant. And when he is, when we show concern like that, it opens a door for God to do the unexpected. Boaz and Ruth, their story never goes anywhere if Boaz doesn't ask. But because Boaz shows an interest, God uses that in his sovereign will and plan to do far beyond what we could ever expect. I doubt when Boaz asked that question to his hired hand, he imagines where the story is going to go. But it starts with a question. It starts with a concern for the insignificant. Are you concerned with the people around you and not just people who can do something for you, but people who are insignificant in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood? A godly man has a concern for insignificant people. And once he gets Ruth's story, he doesn't just say, oh, that's interesting, cool story, and go on with his life. No, he gets involved. And we see that first in in Boaz being a protector of the weak in verses 8 and 9. And a godly man should be a protector of the weak. Boaz finds out who she is, and he goes a step further than simply asking about her. He speaks to her, and the real kicker is he takes responsibility for her and for her well-being. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he tells her that she's to glean only in his field, He's to come alongside the workers, his young women who who work there. She'll have safety. And he notes that he's charged the men who work for him not to touch her and to provide water for her as she needs it. So we can gather from these comments and from what we're going to see from Naomi later on in chapter 3, gleaning could be a dangerous task, especially for a young woman who is out working in the fields by herself. We see that, that sexual assault was a very real danger in this situation. 
And Boaz tells her, look, you stay in my field. You stay around my young women. I have told my young men not to touch you. And you will have safety here. You'll have a place where you are safe. You'll have a place of refuge. You'll have a place where you're cared for. Whenever they draw water, take whatever water that you need. He goes out of his way to to show care for her, to protect her, to show concern. You know, he could simply have honored the letter of the Mosaic law by just letting her glean, right? I mean, we think about what we read in Leviticus, what we read in Deuteronomy, don't plow the whole thing, leave a little bit. Think about how a Pharisee would have interpreted that law and probably did interpret that law. Is you could say, all right, we're gonna measure out about two feet on the edge and we're gonna take that all the way around and we're gonna leave that there and then we might leave a few crumbs here and there and I've fulfilled the letter of God's law. I've been obedient to what God has said, but I've maximized my profits, right? I've maximized what is mine and, and made, made the most efficiency that I can out of my field. That's not the way that Boaz operates here. Boaz says, I'm not, op- I'm not honoring the letter of the law. I'm honoring the spirit of the law. Right? What God is doing is commanding generosity, commanding one to, to, to be a provider for those who cannot provide for themselves. And so he takes it to the next level. He's more interested in Ruth's safety and her well-being than he is in his own profit. And so he says, don't go to all the fields. Spend all your time in mine. Do all your gleaning right here. She didn't have to be his problem, Right? Like, he doesn't owe her anything. He doesn't owe her any responsibility. If, she, if he allowed her to just, hey, come and go as you want, glean here, glean elsewhere, you know, that's fine. And if she was assaulted in another man's field, that's not his responsibility. Like, he's not held guilty for that. But Boaz doesn't just stop at covering his responsibility, right? What we see in Boaz here is here's a guy who is not concerned primarily with, what's my obligation? What do I have to fulfill to the people around me? No, he says, I'm going to take this opportunity to care for Ruth. I'm going to consider her more significant than myself. That sound like a familiar concept? Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. If Boaz looked to his own interests, he'd care about his field. He might let Ruth go do her thing, but he's not going to pay her a whole lot of mind. But he considers Ruth more significant than himself. And so he reorganizes his operation to make sure that she's safe, cared for, and provided for. He does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit, conceit, pride, These are temptations that affect all of us. And I would suggest to you that the wealthier you become, the more standing you gain in the eyes of the world, the deeper those temptations run. Boaz is a rich man. He's a worthy man. He's a man of standing and means in the community. Pride flows heavy in those rivers. But Boaz doesn't go with that current. And he instead considers others more significant than himself. Are you fighting against selfish ambition and conceit in your life? Are you fighting against that pride by investing in other people the way that Boaz does? By showing care and concern, not just by what you're obligated to do, but by what you desire to do from a heart that overflows with gratitude to Yahweh, to your covenant God and King. We see then an interaction between Boaz and Ruth in verses 10 through 13 that shows us that Boaz is a lover of what is good. What is it that really grabs his heart and drives him to go all out in showing care for Ruth? It's that he loves what is good. Verses 10 through 13. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since since I'm a foreigner? Now, think about this. We don't have a whole lot of story. We don't know how long Ruth has been in Bethlehem at this point. But it's not difficult to imagine that she's probably been ignored, marginalized, and even mistreated by some people since she's arrived in Bethlehem. Right? She's a foreigner. And a foreigner from a country in Moab that is an enemy to the people of Israel. She's an orphan. Or she's a widow, excuse me. She's not significant. She's not someone of means. And so you can imagine that what she's used to is being, at best case, just brushed aside and ignored. 
and worst case, mistreated. Barb's flung her way in terms of, of words or glances. What are you doing here? You don't belong here. You're not one of us. But here, Boaz shows kindness and it floors her. Why on earth have I found favor in your eyes? What's different about this guy? Why would he treat me this way? And look at what Boaz says. He says that he is moved and driven by the amazing story of Ruth's devotion to Naomi, what Ruth sacrificed to stay with her, and the fact that she has sought refuge under the wings of the Lord God. Right? Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Why would you take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. Because what God is doing in your life is amazing. Boaz is excited by what he sees going on in Ruth's life, by the story that he's heard of what she's done for Naomi, of her devotion to God, of the risk that she took to step out and come to a place that's unfamiliar. Boaz is enthralled by what he sees the Lord doing in Ruth's life. It puts a smile on his face. It grabs his attention. What catches your attention? What captivates your heart? What captivates your mind? What captivates your soul? What are those stories that when you hear them, it excites you? It moves you to act, to get involved. Is it, is it virtue? Is it the things that the Lord loves? Do you love what God loves? Have you ever stopped to consider that the Lord doesn't just command you to do good? He commands you to love good. That's a, that's a difference, Right? Anybody can do good out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of duty. This is what I am supposed to do, and therefore I will follow all the commands that the Lord gives me. There's a difference between that and loving what is good. Being captivated by it, seeing it, being enthralled by it, and being spurred on to want to love and do good, to love the things that God loves. Listen to what God commands in the book of Amos, chapter 5. He says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And then again in Titus, as Paul is laying out the qualifications of a pastor, of an elder, he says, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. You're not just commanded to do good, you're commanded to love good. And our culture doesn't tilt that direction. Right? Our culture is fascinated with the gritty. Like, think about, about the entertainment that is, that is doing really, really well. TV shows and movies, if they're not mature, in, in air quotes, unless they're filled with violence and every flavor of the profane. Like Storytelling that clicks is that which is dark, which is edgy. And if it's not, then it's inauthentic, it's plastic. We're, we're a culture that is suspicious of virtue, as fake, as a front. It's not real unless it's dirty, unless it's grimy, unless it's gritty. We, we can pump out great Batman films all day long. The Dark Knight trilogy, I mean, those things, put them on repeat. They're fantastic movies. But our culture doesn't know how to make a Superman movie to save its life. He's too nice. He's too good. He's too upright. Like, we, that just, it feels fake, Right? Superman's he's got to break somebody's neck at the end of it because if we just have him be really nice and, and, and be the Superman that, that you see throughout the comics, it feels plastic, it feels fake, it feels inauthentic. It's not gritty enough, right? You, you might be going out to see the Avengers this weekend or, or this week or as soon as humanly possible, like I'm planning to. Captain America works in the Avengers films primarily because he's a fish out of water. Right? If you watch the first Captain America film, you see this portrait of this guy who is earnest, who is good, who is honorable, who does what is right. He is a paradigm of virtue. And the reason that he works on screen with the Avengers is because mostly he's played as, man, what an oddball. Like This guy is just drawn by this, this righteousness and goodness, and it never stops. And isn't that unique in our world? You, know, you have Tony Stark as the, as the billionaire playboy who, who does what's good, and he has... A, he has uh, he wrestles a little bit with what, what his motivation should be. Captain America never questions what his motivation is. I'm here to serve. I'm here to save. I'm here to do the honorable thing. And the reason it works is because he's the only one on screen usually who has those motivations. Our culture thinks that is weird. 
We like the gritty. We don't know what to do with the sincere. And it is really, really easy without even realizing it to get that on you. Right? A fish doesn't know that he's wet. All a fish knows is what it's like to be in water. And so a fish can be very, very blind to the fact that he's wet all the time. It's very much the same way. When we live in a culture that loves the gritty, that loves the dark, we can oftentimes be caught up in that without even realizing how much it affects our thought, how subtly it pulls us along. Do you love what is good more than you're fascinated with the darker side of this world? Does virtue seem plastic and fake to you? Or when you see something like the story of Ruth and Naomi, does it captivate you like it captivated Boaz? Is that what, what stirs you to action? What, what do your social media habits say on this front? If someone knew you only by the articles you share on Facebook or the things that you retweet, would they classify you as a humble, humble lover of good or a brash cynic? Now, that's not to say there's not a place for calling out unrighteousness or there's not a place for the serrated edge of sarcasm. I mean, read the Bible. The Bible does both of those things. But it shouldn't be the chief characteristic of what you value. Do you love what is good? Ruth, in her humility here, can't believe that Boaz would show her this grace. She says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. She realizes he owes me nothing. What an amazing thing that he would do this for me. May our love for God and for what God loves motivate actions that are similarly shocking. People should look at me and look at you and think, why on earth would you do that? It doesn't make sense. You take Christ out of the equation and it's foolishness. May our love for what is good provoke actions that shock those <coughs> around us. Excuse me. And if Boaz had stopped here and sent her on her way, we'd probably conclude that he's a pretty remarkable guy, right? This is a, an amazing picture. This is a godly man that we're seeing. But Boaz isn't done. Verses 14 through 16, we see that he is a generous provider. <coughs> And a godly man should be a generous provider. He invites Ruth to eat with him and with the rest of his workers. She's not simply, <coughs> excuse me, goodness. She's not simply tolerated or allowed. Right? Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz says to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out from the bundles some for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Ruth is not simply tolerated. She's not simply allowed to stick around. She's welcomed. She's cared for. And catch this, she's treated as an equal. It's one thing to say, the Lord commands us to allow people to come and glean in our fields. But I would, I would dare to wager that in most of the fields of Bethlehem at the time, there was a very clear distinction between the owners, the hired workers, and the gleaners. You would not have to spend too much time watching to see those social divisions and hierarchies in place. Not in Boaz's field. Boaz says, come here and eat with us. She sits beside the reapers. And Boaz, the owner of the field, passes to her roasted grain. When you're caring for the marginalized because they're people made in the image of God, it's going to look different than if you care for them because it makes you feel good or it helps your brand reputation or it looks good on Twitter. If you're being good in order to make yourself look good, you're going to deal with people differently than if you say, this is a person that God has made. This person is God's child. And I love them and want to do good for them. Boaz didn't just do for, he shared with. I want you to think about that. Boaz didn't just do for Ruth, he shared with Ruth. The big difference between those two is relationship. It's personal, it's relational. He doesn't just give her a handout of food and send her on her way. He invites her to come in, to eat with him, to eat with his people, 
to sit among his people. He provides for her not just in a cold way, but in a personal, warm fellowship. When we are generous, do we do for or do we share with others? Are we willing to enter into relationship with the people that God puts in our path? Do you have conversations with the people around you who are marginalized, who are outcasts? Are you sharing meals with people? This is one of the most intimate things that could be done in that culture in terms of relational friendships was eating together. And our culture is still the same way. When you have someone over to your house for dinner, it becomes very, very difficult to, to pass them at work or at church and not say hello to them. Like it changes the dynamic when you share that kind of fellowship. Are we doing that with people? Are we sharing our lives with others? But Boaz still isn't done. When she heads back to the fields to continue working, he gives some instructions to his workers. Right, Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. So he's saying, look, let her glean wherever she wants, not just on the fringe of the field, but where you're gathering. Let her come in there. Don't say anything to her. In fact, also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He's telling his guys, hey, could, how about accidentally just drop some when you're out there? Where you're hauling the sheaves off, whoops, I guess we let that one fall and just, just leave it. He is taking the, the, the command of generosity, the command to don't beat your olive trees twice, don't strip your vines, this command to leave some behind. He's taking that and he's running with it. He's showing radical generosity. And he's saying, I'm going to go out of my way to lose more and leave more for her. Do we give like that? Does your generosity look like this? Or, or do you just check the box when you give? Do you just do your obligation, continue what it is that you're supposed to do? When you give financially, how do you give? What does your generosity look like? Whether you're giving to others, whether you're giving to Trinity to support our mission. And I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with the fact that we're doing really, really well financially. God has blessed us beyond our means. We had an elder meeting last night. Dave and Tom and myself were, ha were having to come up with extra stuff to do with the missions budget that God has given us because he's just thrown more in our lap than we could care for. So when I say what I'm about to say, don't hear it as I'm trying to guilt you into giving more because we're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And thank you for your generous giving. That's not what is motivating this. I'm not concerned financially for us, I'm concerned pastorally for you. When you read a biblical command to generosity, do you ask, how much do I need to give to fulfill that? Or do you ask, what are all the ways I can fulfill that? Does your generosity look like I'm checking a box, I'm following the letter of Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 24, I'm leaving this amount of my field untouched so that people can come and get it? Or are you dropping sheaves left and right? Are you saying you've got free reign? Are you giving generously, radically, sacrificially because you love to? Because God has transformed your heart and you want to see people come to know him. You want to see what God has given you be used to bless other people. What does your generosity model look like? Are you giving what you need to fulfill the obligation? Or are you giving from a heart that is a generous provider for those around you? And notice that Boaz does this giving secretly, right? When does he give the instructions to his, to his men, to his workers? When she rose to glean. So she gets up and leaves. Okay, guys, by the way, just drop some here and there. He's, he's going to be generous to her, but he's doing it in a way that is, that is subtle, that is secretive. He's not making a show out of what he's doing for Ruth. He's honoring the words that Jesus would proclaim a thousand years later when Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I love that, that radical turn of phrase. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Like, go out of your way to not make a show of your righteousness, to not make a show of your generosity. Give for an audience of one, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Like, when you do these things, when you give in this way, no one will usually know. No one will ever see. I always, whenever I think about this concept, 
and I don't know if they still do this, but when we were at Boyce College, they had a, an award that was given every year called the Servant Towel. Is this still a thing? They still do that? So I like the idea behind that, but it always struck me as a little bit odd because the idea of the Servant Towel is it's an award that was given at the end of the year to someone who embodies service to others, sacrificial giving, not seeking the limelight and going out of their way to do good and, and follow the command that Jesus gave in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. I, I love the heart behind that and wanting to honor that, but what always struck me as strange is by definition, won't the person who most deserves to win it not get it? Like, if, if the point is to go out of your way to give in a way that, that your left hand doesn't even know what your right is doing, then the person who really embodies that the most is going to be the person no one would ever vote for or suspect. Be that person. Be the one that it, it doesn't matter if you would finish on someone's top five list of the best servants at Trinity Church. Man, let nobody know what it is that you're doing because the reward that you get isn't in the praise that you get from other people. I should say the reward you want isn't the praise you'll get from other people. God says when you get that praise, you've got your reward. Congratulations, there's your prize. Seek the reward that's eternal. Seek the reward from your father who rewards the one who gives in secret. Be, like Boaz, a generous provider for the people around you. So there's our character study. There's our intro to Boaz. So now we come to the what do we do with this part? Because when we're confronted with a godly man like Boaz, who embodies humble obedience to so many commands in Scripture, the first thing that we should do is we should strive to be like him, right? The Bible says in he, or no, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, speaking of the Old Testament, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. When you read the Old Testament, it's full of stories. It's full of narrative, like Ruth, where we're, we're given these characters, we're given these people, we're told what happened in their lives, and those things were written down as instruction to us that we might apply principles that we see at work in a guy like Boaz and say, I want to be like that. But where we can go off the rails is if that's all we do with this text, right? So the, the, the prime application from these first 16 verses is to understand where Boaz fits in the story, and then we should be like Boaz, Guys, we should want to be the kind of man that Boaz is in our generosity and our provision. We want to foster these kind of traits. Ladies, you want to foster these same kind of traits that you see at play in Boaz, and you want to encourage the men that you know to be this kind of, of generous provider, to be this kind of protector, to be this one who has a heart for the Lord. We want to see and, and, and learn from and become like Boaz. But what we also want to do is see that Boaz is not an end in and of himself. Because remember, what was the most important part about Boaz? He's acting as a tool in the hand of the Lord. He's not the storyteller. He's a character in the grand story being told by the director of the entire play. And that part that he plays is building towards something bigger than him. Boaz is a redeemer we're about to see next week. He's, he's going to come into the story and redeem Ruth and Naomi from their suffering. He's a redeemer from Bethlehem. Right, But he's not the redeemer from Bethlehem. His story is going to conclude, like David mentioned earlier, in the birth of King David. And King David's story is going to conclude in the birth of King Jesus. Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. Boaz embodies things in part that Christ embodies in whole. When you read the Old Testament, say, yes, I want to be like Boaz. I want to have that kind of life. But don't stop there. Say, Boaz points me to Christ. Who showed ultimate obedience to the Father's will? Who was the ultimate tool in the hand of God the Father? Who put the focus on God in all things that he did? Who showed constant concern for the neglected, for the outcast? Who sheltered the weak, all the weak, all the helpless under his protecting wings? Who embodied a love for everything that is good? Who provides generously and eternally for his people? Jesus. All of the traits that we see in Boaz find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in who he is, in what he does for us. So don't just be like Boaz. But hear and see in Boaz shadows and echoes of the Christ who is to come. The one with whom all the universe resonates. All of history, every story ever told, culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. And so as we look through the Old Testament tales like this, and as we see godly men, they are meant to point us forward, to draw our eyes to the way that Jesus is like them, but better than them. The old standby Boaz 
you know, we, we see him and Jesus is the true and better Boaz, right? He is the one to whom Boaz points. He is the destination of this journey. Ultimately, Boaz resonates with us, not just because he's a good guy, but because he's a shadow of the one that the whole universe resonates with. We are to see in his love for and redemption of Ruth an echo of Jesus's love for and redemption of us. And we're to rejoice in that. And so as we meet Boaz, think about two ways to do application. Number one, what this week can you do to become more like him? If you're following Jesus, look at this guy as a model, as a virtue, or as a, as a paradigm, as a template. How can I become a godly man and embody these same traits I see in Boaz? But then number two, so that, that's, that's the, the, the basic, the ground level application. Then go beyond that, higher, deeper to how can I love and, and treasure Jesus Christ more? How does Boaz teach me about Jesus? How does he teach me about not just his part in the story, but the grand part in the story? And how can I magnify Christ, excuse me, magnify Christ in that same way? You meet Boaz. You've met Boaz this morning. Have you met Jesus? Have you come face to face with him? Have you been transformed by his story? Have you been transformed by his goodness, his greatness? You can try to be like Boaz. You're going to screw up by probably three o'clock this afternoon. If you make it to three o'clock without messing up anything, we're going to be, you're doing fantastic. It's a dead end street to say, I'm just going to be a, a person of virtue, a paradigm of godliness and do my best. You're going to fail. That's why Jesus came. Because you don't ultimately need to be like Boaz. You need to be cleansed and made like your father who is in heaven. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus says. That's the standard. That's the calling that we have to live up to. Boaz is valuable to you because he points you to the one who came to accomplish that. He points you to the one who has given you his spirit to live within you, to transform you. If you come by faith and put your faith and trust in him, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So we're introduced to Boaz here. We're going to see his story begin to grow. We're going to see the plot begin to thicken next week as Tom comes and he preaches to us. But in meeting him, in this character study, in this five-minute scene, meditate this week on the qualities that you've seen in this man. Say, God, make me like that. Help me to embody these things myself. But most importantly, let your eyes and your heart be drawn upward to the author of this tale, to the one who is moving, who is putting all things together in such a way that he is glorified and that people are cared for, that people are redeemed, that people are saved and made like Jesus. Join me in prayer if you would. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for Boaz, for the way that we see your grace active and alive in his life for the, the strong example that he is to us. God, I pray that you would convict us this morning where we see traits, where we see attitudes, where we see actions in him that we think, I, I, I'm not there. I don't do that. I don't think like that. God, may you give us grace to grow in holiness, to grow in righteousness, to grow in our obedience to your commands. God, may we not be a people with a generosity that checks the box. May we not be a people who are obedience to the letter of your command and not a step more, but may we be people who are captivated by who you are, by what you've done, by what you're doing, by what you've said to us. And may we run with your commands. May we be filled with your spirit, with a love for those that you put into our path. And may we glorify you with all that we do and say and think. And Father, I pray that you would draw our hearts, not just to this man, but to the promised one who would come from him to the one through who all history groans in anticipation of. God, may we see Jesus. May we be reminded of his perfect love, of the way that he spoke to the outcast, of the way that he made his home among those that society rejected. He showed love to the weak. He showed love to weak sinners like us. And Father, he brought redemption, perfect redemption from sin. And as we continue to watch Boaz and Ruth and their journey and the way that Boaz redeems Ruth from her suffering, God, may we be reminded that you are our ultimate redeemer. You are the fulfiller of every promise. You are the one whom all of history is pregnant with the hope of. 
And Father, may you cultivate in us faith and trust. May we seek not to become righteous of our own accord, but may we find in you the hope of righteousness, a righteousness that's not my own, that doesn't come from me, that is built and sustained by your spirit in my life. God, be glorified in us today. As we come to to celebrate communion, focus our minds on the sacrifice that Christ made for us, on the grace that he freely offers through his life and his death and his resurrection. If there's anyone this morning that has never come under the shadow, under the shelter of that redemption, God, may you draw their heart this morning. May you shatter their self-sufficiency and may you call them to yourself through faith and trust in your son. Father, and in us, in Trinity Church, may you glorify yourself with a people who looks more and more like Boaz each and every day, with a people who love radically, who give generously, who invest in all of those around us, not just the the ones that this world sees and pays attention to. God, be glorified in and through us. We pray today and in the future and for all eternity. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.